Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. Today, the trail has traveled is being recorded near the southernmost tip of Africa. I'm sitting here under an aftak. It's a thatch hut with open air. We've got birds around us. We're drinking rooibos tea and yerba mate. But I'm sitting here with Raymond Hildenheis, and I'll never forget the image of Raymond driving his 1970s Land Rover pickup above the dunes with the Indian Ocean in the background. And I was with two very good friends who also really appreciate a solid 4x4 vehicle. And so when Raymond pulled up, we asked him if we could photograph his vehicle, and he got out, and we had a nice chat. Yeah, Raymond, that was the first time we met here on the coast, I believe. Thank you so much for joining me here today on The Trail Less Traveled. Yeah, thank you, Mandy. It's nice spending time here and having a nice conversation. My first question for you, Raymond, is where did you grow up and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Yeah, in the small town Heidelberg in the Western Cape. That's basically the region. Grew up this side on the farm. The first memories I've got, Dad teaching us how to ride horses and also grandfather coming to harvest, harvest the honey on the farm. So that gave the basis of my life for the future, living on a farm, being part of nature. Our land stretches all the way to the coast. So yeah, being at the beach, fishing, that's a very big part of the substance of what life, life ahead is about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, the adventure, I mean, growing up with horses, Usually we use the horses to bring in the cattle and the sheep to work with them, give them vaccination or whatever. And then eventually the horse became my means of traveling. So our house from the farm to the beach is about 20 kilometers. So weekends I take my horse, nothing else. I ride all the way to the beach, come and stay here, take my cast net, catch some mullet, ride over the fire and that's my uh, mostly solo time coming to the beach like that. You mentioned the Land Rover. Since I was a little boy, my grandfather always had a green old 1970s model. And I'm very much naturally mechanical minded. So whenever grandfather started the Land Rover, I was there. I was like, how do you start it? What do you do? Because you had a lot of tricks you had to start because it was diesel. So you had your glow plugs a certain amount of time going and then you have to do this and so I had this idea I want the Land Rover with Toyota parts inside engine gearbox whatever but that was just a dream I I had in my mind eventually after many years I think I was 18 or somewhere there my grandfather died and my dad came to the three of our, our boys and almost suspiciously, he asked us, so did any of you want something from your grandfather? And we're like, uh, no, we didn't, there's nothing specifically we want from him. 
And then my dad said, but Raymond, your grandfather gave you his Land Rover. And man, I almost fell on my back because I wasn't the oldest grandson. There was two or three grandsons older than me. I remember just once in my dealings with my granddad, I thought maybe you will give this Land Rover to that grandchild because he's the oldest or whatever. And then I never thought about it again. My grandfather, when he stayed in the old age home, the Land Rover would stay with us on the farm. Weekends, I would, the first thing after school, I go there, I pump the wheels, I check the water, I bleed the brakes, check the clutch. So whenever granddad comes, everything's already sorted. We just get in, we drive to the field. And I understood later that in his, his dealings, he realized there's no one else gonna look after my land who are better than this little boy. And he gave it to me. The worst of that is, I cannot say thank you to my grandfather. Although, in a sense, I did, because I was almost the owner of that Jeep before, <laughs> before my grandfather uh, gave it to me. So, yeah, that was something special for me. And I mean, in general, having a great love for Land Rovers, yeah, getting a present from your granddad. I mean, I was the first boy, first of our three sons. I've got a vehicle, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's something. Yeah, I can I can go weekends. I don't have to ask anyone. I take my Land Rover and I go to Brombos. We go and catch fish there, and so yeah, that was that was a blessing. A couple of years before that. I was about between eight or ten. My grandfather, he always had eight beehives on the farm. And then end of February, he would come, he harvested honey. And then one year, he came, he harvested, and he called our three brothers, he called us, and he said, boys, your grandfather is done with the bees now, so any of you wants it, you can have it. And by that time, it didn't mean here is a business for you, nothing like that. It meant you're gonna work. The bees is there, the honey is not yours, you're gonna harvest the honey, you're gonna give it to the house, and it, the rest goes to the sisters of my... So we will always give the honey away. And they said nothing, my two brothers. So I said, Opa, Grandpa, I will do it, I will look after it. That was before I got the Land Rover. So he basically gave that beehives to me Although I had to say, I'll take it. I will look after it for you. And then I started harvesting it and God blessed it to a point that I started selling the honey. I harvested much more than what we needed. And yeah, I was 10, 12, having a small business, having an income. Usually Fridays, my mother would bring some of the honey into town. And then when she picks us up from school, we will first stop at two or three shops. We go and sell the honey and then Again, my grandfather, he heard about how I manage his beehives. He could hear, listen, he's going forward. He's selling now everywhere. Uh, also, I moved some of the hives to the Feinbos. I don't know what that is in English, yeah. but that's the field on the coast. Started harvesting different types of honey from that side. Raymond, can you tell us a little bit more about this area that we're sitting in right now? You know, the land that you grew up on and the Feinbos and what's it like in the Western Cape of South Africa here near the coast? In general, our temperature here is in the winter, you will get a minimum of about 15. You won't reach 10 degrees often. So 
for us that's quite cold but I mean that's not very cold other <laughs> considering to other places and then our summers you will get anything between 25 and 40 mm -hmm. degrees it is uh, let's call it almost an untouched part of the world there's a stretch coast where the natural feinbos is a mix of 30 to 100 different species of uh, just small bush growing having flowers and it's a stretch of about 10 to 15 kilometers wide running alongside the coast of this untouched you can't uh, bring a tractor in here and dig up the soil start planting wheat it's mostly sand so that's part of the reason why it's not been commercialized disturbed mm -hmm. if you can if you can uh, have it like that and then also the beach there isn't any roads on this stretch of coast talking about about almost 20 kilometers where you can take your car out of Cape Town and come to our beach. There's no way you can get there. If you don't know me or someone else who's got ownership of the land, you can't reach that beach. So it's that stretch of a coast almost untouched. Obviously, there's fishing. Yeah, you can almost say I've got a private beach. Most of the year, you, you don't see people on that stretch of a beach. It's a big privilege having that. Well, we do share it with our friends and <laughs> inviting them. So it's not like we don't want people, uh, but it's just the way it still is like that. Yeah, and also there's a river mouth right here. It's called the Davenox River. It's running from the mountains, coming straight through the little town, Edelberg. And then the, the mouth is here on the coast, well, less than a kilometer from our private land. There's great fishing here. I personally like to dive, do spear fishing. You get different kinds of people. So you get the one, you can stand there with his fishing rod, just watching the waves, hoping something is going to bite. And I want to go and check if there is something that will bite. <laughs> so, so I've been um, just snorkeling uh, since I was small. You're on the beach, it's awesome. But as soon as you dive into the water, immediately there's life. I mean, you see the octopus, you see the small fishes feeding, the mullets. Then there's a water tortoise coming past. Without catching something or trying to harvest something, it's just a blessing. You're like, you're entertained the whole time. And then, I don't know, there's a small fish. They swim in big schools. We call it uh, streeper, so it's in, in English, they have golden stripes on their, on their sides, running horizontally on their sides. And they will come in thousands, mm -hmm. swimming right around you. And if you stay quiet, you can hear like their tails going tick, 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 tick. And it's, man, you're in heaven, like mm -hmm. it's, it's just amazing. So, and then also going out to spearfish, we get Garrick, we get kinds of cabalio, it's a black fish. We call it bell cabalio. It's a species of cod, so... And then red roman, you get uh, colstert. I don't know what that is in English. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, scope for entertaining like that and keeping yourself busy. Mm. <laughs> We're sitting in the Feinbos at the most 
southern tip of Africa with Raymond Hildenheis. And Raymond grew up here on a farm. How many kilometers from where we're sitting right now? Yeah, our commercial farm is uh, about 20 kilometers from here. But the borderline to your farm from where we sit now? That will be like maybe a kilometer. Yeah, so it's quite close. Yeah. Raymond, I would love now to hear some about your adventures in honey making. Okay. So I just would love to take a deep dive from the basics to the more advanced about the adventure of honey making. Okay. Uh, like I mentioned, my grandfather gave me this beehives. So it was basically just a square box of wood. And the bees, you will go there once or twice a year, take your knife, you cut out the honey. But in the process, you also, you almost destroy the inside because the honey is the top, because it's heavy. Naturally, the bees, they tore it in the top section of the combs. So to collect that, you cut out everything. You even cut out the, we call it brood, uh, where, they, where the queen is breeding her eggs. That's how we started. Well, I started with the bees and then we started using the technology where you have the basis, the bottom piece of the hive where the queen can have freedom to breed. You never, you never disturb her there. And then on top you put boxes four inches deep, two or three on top, and then the bees, uh, they produce the honey on, at the top where it is naturally produced but then when you harvest you take off the whole box we have got a machine called an extractor so you take the frames put it in there and it works like a, almost like a tumble dryer <laughs> it spins and you end up with the comb still intact so you give the bees back the whole comb and then you save them a lot of time for building the, the wax comb and then also you didn't destroy the whole hive you know harvesting like that so that's just part of it. There's different ways, obviously, of reproducing bees. Some people call it you split them, so you produce your own queen bee. And then when you are ready, you just go to your beehive. Usually there's about 10 frames down in the place where the queen is breeding. Then you can take five out, and then you make sure which side is the queen. You can find her, and then... You put the five frames in another beehive. Understand me correctly, there's bees everywhere. So when you take out the frame, there's bees on the frame. So you literally split the amount of bees into two. And then you take your queen, which you produced. You put her in the box after you check where the actual queen is. So you just make sure there's a queen with both of the boxes. Mm -hmm. Then you've split it in two. But that's mostly what they do when they want to pollinate. For honey production, you don't want to split your hive in two because then they are too weak and they can't produce honey. The bigger and the more bees there is, the better they produce. Mm. But for pollination, you don't need an extremely strong hive. You just need a proper basis for the queen to continue. And then that's what they use to multiply, yeah. In nature, that process also happens, but the queen decides she wants to produce another queen. That's usually when the bees, they become too many for that limited space they're living in. So they start sleeping outside. You will start noticing like a ball or lands full of bees hanging outside if it's a tree trunk or a beehive, whatever. And then you realize there's no space for them. They will never sleep outside mm -hmm. if they can sleep inside. Mm -hmm. So that's the sign that they are becoming too much. At that point, I will go and put another 
two to three inches of wooden box on top because I don't want to lose those bees. But in nature, if you leave them like that, they produce another queen. And then when that queen is ready and she's, I'm talking on the correction, I don't think she's already been pregnated before she leaves, but there is someone who will be able to tell you whether that's the case. Then that new queen, someday, whatever, she will take off of the colony, the bees, and they will just depart. And then they would have previously scouted out where they want to go, so they will know exactly which direction. Because obviously they won't just take the road and fly over the ocean. They, they've, got a, they've got a plan and a place where they want to go. And that's where I come in with me catching them. I will put out new beehives. We would uh, make a plan that, that it's attractive to the bees. And then I just put it empty out in the field, wherever. While the bees are working, they will spot that hive, the worker bees. They will spot it, they will go in. Some of them, sometimes they will sleep over in that hive all by themselves. And then the next day, they will go and report to the main hive, listen, I found this spot. If you want to move there, we can move there. So that's how they communicate. And there's obviously a much more intelligent uh, way how they do it but that's <laughs> that's if, if I can explain it to you in uh, in human terms so yeah then when they are happy they will go there the queen will move in and yeah they will start the whole new colony right there sometimes in a old shed or uh, the bees will move in there and it's a problem for people so mm. I will go there I will try to cut out the combs so I put the combs inside the frame, put the elastic band around just to keep it in line. And then you put all the combs you can find. You put it in the frames, put it in the box, and then you put the box as close to the spot where they were hanging. That's one way out you can do it. Some people go, they catch the queen. You can either put her in a little matchbox and you leave the matchbox a little bit open with a little on the side, then they will feed the queen through that space you left open. Mm -hmm. But you catch her, then you put her inside your beehive where you've placed all that combs. Because they will always move where she is. Mm -hmm. If she flies out, they will follow her. Mm -hmm. So now you've placed her in there, they will move in, they will feed her right there. And then that's the way we also get them to go into our hives. We catch her because you've got a, like a basically a 50% chance to get them to go into your hive. Because I'm going to explain it again in human terms. you got your nice house, open space on the side of your house. Someone come, they build a new house there, and they like, don't you want to move to, to this new house? And you're like, man, I'm happy where I'm staying. This is my house. It's been fully furnished and everything. Why would I want to move into a new house? So that's the way they are. They are happy where they are at the moment. So for you to convince them to move, you've got a 50-50% chance. Because mm -hmm. point number one, you completely destroyed the hive. So they are like, man, this is a dangerous place we are living in. Because mm -hmm. moving five yards from there or half a meter from there, we are still in danger. It can happen just again. So they are immediately in a survival mode. Like we need to get away from here. That's the reason why we catch the queen, to locate her inside the new hive. And then the other bees think she's happy where she is, because she will only go where she's happy. Mm -hmm. You understand? So you're basically lying to the queen 
and the others just to move her into your new life. If you don't catch her, your chances are just sometimes she's she's fine. She goes after the the brood because the I don't know how long, but if you leave the brood for a little bit to get cold, they will just die. They start dying. So that's the other natural way for the bees to move in because they locate the brood, the larva. They want to keep it warm to survive. But sometimes they just like, uh, they, there's a mess, they broke a hive, they just move out and you lose the, you lose the bees. So we've got a few seasons, our region we are living in. We've got commercially the farmers plant the canola. So in that time, there's a lot of movement from the wild bees. Usually they will, they will move from the mountains to the canola and also out of the Feinbos field straight towards the mountains and also there's parts where the river on the sides of the river is quite a dry area so there's also wild bees in the cliffs and stuff so they will also move towards where the canola is planted and then that's a time for us to to catch a lot of bees but then we've got the canola we plant lucerne that's a crop it's not growing very high but it's mainly for for the sheep and the cattle almost like a blue purple flower and we need the rain to fall in the summer so anything from september until november december if it's raining in that season we get the lucerne flower and it's producing a very like a very bright kind of honey very tasty and it's the the amounts of honey that we always is ridiculous it's a lot and then we also get the normal, like, let's call it wildflower. It's also feed for the sheep, but different kinds of little flowers and stuff. You get also that mixed into that uh, when it's raining in the summer. Then our eucalyptus trees, they flower from about November, December. They start in, until the end of February, they will flower. That's our region's most expensive, most let's call it delicate honey you can get i mean anywhere in the world if you've given someone a little bit of uh, eucalyptus honey eh, you've spoiled that person for the rest of his life no honey after that it's like hey man there's something wrong with this honey it needs to be (laughs) it needs to be eucalyptus i'm telling you because it's got this rich aroma like it's thick Mm -hmm. the sugar level that is is very high so it's very thick honey it doesn't crystallize very easily we've had honey standing in the shelf for like four or five years mm-hmm. doesn't crystallize at all mm. and then if you put the spoon in the spoon doesn't want to go into the honey it just stays on top that's how thick it becomes or it is like when you harvest it's like that but obviously that's a very limited honey because our summers are usually a dry summer and then because we farm commercially with the bees, there's a lot of bees going to get that eucalyptus honey actually just to survive over that season, that dry season. So if it's quite a wet year, you will produce lacquer, a good amount, but mostly we end up just having our bees surviving on that. And then I mentioned the feinbos, so that's, that's basically four kinds of honey that we have in this region. I'm sitting here with Raymond Hildenheis, and he's a beekeeper. He's also an adventurer. And we're sitting in the bush. And when I say that, I'm actually talking about Feinbos at the mouth of the Davenhooks River, where it meets the Indian Ocean. And for many people listening, 
it's hard to imagine what this part of Africa might look like. So, Raymond, before we get into the details of your connection with horses and riding around South Africa, I would love it if you could just take a moment to look around and describe to the person listening, what does it look like? Yeah, well, right in front of us, we are a little bit on a little bit of a hill. There's a, there's a lagoon running on our left-hand side. And then the river mouth is facing to the right, going into the sea. And if I look there, the cliffs and stuff, that reminds me of a mountain. The river is curving to the right as it's hitting the side of the hill, going into the sea. And then there's people kayaking there. On the other side of the river is also on the hill. There's some houses, people with uh, their holiday homes. It's made out of uh, thatch, that's what we call it. It's a grass, but it grows about almost two, two and a half meters high. And oh, it's quite strong, so you can, we use like normal poles to make a structure. It's an A-frame structure, anything from six to eight to 12 meters long. So the outside, if you look at it, it's gray. Uh, if it's more than like two or three years old, the new ones, they are like brown, yellowish. That's the natural color of the thatch when it's still freshly harvested. To use a house in this region, not to put like a palace with uh, glass windows and tin roofs and stuff. Very much part of nature. You know? And also it's a very cool temperature wise very cool house in the summer you will have a breeze running through that house even if your windows and doors are closed with a natural flow of air through the through that thatch but then in the winter that's a little bit of a problem because in the winter you still have that little bit of airflow so the houses are quite cold in the winter but yeah usually we have on the sides of the house there's uh, two windows but not very big also, this region, there's a unwritten law, or a, but yeah, that you don't have a very big side window, and it's pretty much uniformed houses. On that other side, you also find it's an outside toilet, so it's a little round structure, also made out of thatch. So he's looking across the Davon Hooks River at a place called Panky, and there's a lot of huts over there, but. You know, since I was a child, I've always admired this beautiful hut that was off on its own. There was a couple of them. And I'm now realizing that that's Raymond's family's hut. It's on the coastline here. It's out in the Feinbos alone. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of your home, your hut. Years ago, I don't even know what year that was. My grandfather bought that stretch of land. He was a very primitive person, so... Even his Land Rover, he painted it with a with a brush. He didn't, he didn't get it spray painted. So he went there. He had a little windy house for himself and then the caravan. That's where he stayed. But then for his children, he, he built these thatch houses. If you compare to what he was living in, that was palaces he gave them. So... <laughs> So my grandfather's got uh, one son and his three daughters, so he built for each of them, he built one of these houses, just to obviously have them there during the holiday season and make space for them. That's where I spend all my December holidays, ever since I can remember, so that's like home, that's where we are. I'd be very grateful and honoured if you would share the story of your ride on a horse around South Africa. It was a spiritual journey for you. If you could just tell us about that adventure. 
I would be very grateful. Yeah, grew up on the farm with horses. Like I said, traveling to this beach with my horse, I would come to the river just to check what my horse will do. I would run as fast as I can to the edge of the river just to see what he's going to do. So he didn't stop. He just took one step and he dived. Like he, <laughs> he, he jumped. Like I didn't believe it. Like it was crazy. We just jumped into the river, literally diving. Cause I mean, we, we went underwater. I turned around, swim out and I did it again. And he jumped again like that. So as if he enjoyed it. But it also, he was a very obedient horse. I went to the sea, then I put his head straight towards the waves, and he didn't show me anything like, hey, I don't want to go here. He just, out of his obedience, he just went. And we went until the waves hit over his head, and I turned around, go out. Obviously, I didn't have my saddle and stuff on it. I just went without a saddle. Then what happened was, I went with our church a few years. We went on outreach to Namibia. So we went there to the native people of Namibia. We would help them farming and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I went there two years. And then the third year, I wanted to go again, but there was a problem with uh, going with the vehicles and stuff. I said to God, I still want to reach out to people even though I don't have the means with a vehicle right now. So I said, God, I've got this horse. I'm willing to go with this horse. If you can help me, I'll, I'll do it like that. And I went to visit one of my friends and when entering his house, he told me there was three people who traveled out of Bloemfontein. That's a city in South Africa, up north, a thousand kilometers from us. And they traveled with three horses to the most southern tip of Africa, which is in our region. And they had a list written. They need fuel for their vehicle. They need food for their horses. They need place to stay. They need a bit of cash for everyday stuff. And when I read this paper, I heard God telling me, everything they did, you are not allowed to do. They had a backup vehicle, you may not have a backup vehicle. They ask for place to sleep, you may not ask for places to sleep. So basically, I may not plan anything. I can take my horse and go and God will sort out the rest. And I mean, for me, that was like, how is this going to work? It doesn't sound like for my own brain, there's something terrible going to happen. <laughs> but I trusted God. I know when he speaks, I could tell this is the plan. So from my farm, to the most southern tip of Africa is about 140 kilometers. So I thought that will be my starting point. But I still started off from the farm with the horse. So that was in the year 2011, January 24th, I started off. And obviously the first night, now God told me, you're not allowed to knock on people's doors. So now I need to take that step of faith and trust that that's going to happen. I'm going to get somehow, I'm going to get a place to sleep. Eh? So I didn't have the faith to obey God in that sense. So I knocked at a place with a bed and breakfast and I stayed there and the lady gave me a, a little book from Bruce Wilkinson, um, Dream Giver. And it's a book written in a parable about a little guy who was living in a town called familiar and this boy's name was ordinary and he had this feeling or idea that there must be more in life than just going to work having a family and then 
yeah, then your life is <laughs> you're done with your life. There must be something more than that, just that. So all of this is written in his book. And then he said to his family, you need to go out of this town. There's something outside. And they said, no, you're crazy. Some people tried to get out of this town, but they died. And then those who, just outside of the town, there's a desert. And if you reach the desert, there's giants inside the desert. The first giant, lack of money. Second one, fear of man. And there's a few like that. So as I'm reading this little book, God is speaking to me like a man sitting on the other side of the table, telling me, this is where you're at. This is your first day. You are basically ordinary. You're moving out of this town called familiar. You're already facing the giants because you're not going to get money from anywhere. <laughs> and um, so that's how my trip started. So the next day I went to, that's also a small town closer to the most southern tip of Africa, Bredarsdorp. The afternoon I reached there and it was getting five o'clock, six o'clock, which is in our hours just before dark. And I said to God, tonight, I'm willing to sleep outside, cold, without food, whatever, but I'm trusting you to, according to your word which you gave me, you will give me a place to sleep. And I wrote and a person stopped on the side of the road, started chatting with me, asking me what's happening, where you're going. And I was not very talkative because I was just focusing on not asking him mm -hmm. for a place to sleep. So I would just tell him, I don't know where I'm going. I'm just riding. I'm just going this way, that way. And he asked me, hey man, where are you going to sleep tonight? And I said, I, I've, I don't know. And he said, you are sleeping in my house tonight. And when he said those words, eh, I burst out in tears. Like I was crying uncontrollably because I didn't drop anything to this guy that I'm, I'm in need. He was asking, he was pulling it out of me. So that was, oh, that was a blessing. So after that, I traveled. That trip of mine was 80 days. I roughly traveled 1,000 kilometers. And from there, I knocked on only one person's house. And then it was a friend I knew. So I didn't think I was, uh, <laughs> what do you call it, Chapo there. I just went to visit him. The whole trip was about God going with me, providing for me a house, providing for me food, providing for the horse to eat. That's in short, but that's, that's how it went. And like I said, it was 80 days. Every day I had a place to sleep. Every day I had food for myself, for the horse. I could stop at schools. I could share the gospel, but also share this father heart of our God who didn't let go of me since I now wasn't connected to my earthly provision, if I can if I can put it like that. There's no limit to the stuff I experienced. Miraculously, sometimes 10 o'clock at night, I get my place to sleep. Other times 10 o'clock in the morning. It was not the same every day, but always provided for. And every day I could see the hand of God managing, planning and taking my route, taking me on that road. <laughs> so that's how it was. And like I said, a thousand kilometers, I was not in a hurry. So some days I would do 20 or maybe 25, 30 kilometers. Other days I had 45, 50 kilometers. But then when people invited me, 
That's the only thing I, I mostly ask them. I ask them if they will be fine if I just stay one day, that my horse can rest one day. That's basically how I did the trip. So my horse was in a better condition at the end of the trip than what it was in the beginning. That's the voice of Raymond Heldenheis, and he rode his horse for 80 days around Southern Africa, a total of 1,000 kilometers. What a beautiful journey. Raymond, can I ask you, what's your horse's name? His name was Whiskey. Whiskey. <laughs> yeah. I rode that horse for quite a while before I named it. <laughs> so uh, three people, different people told me you must call him Whiskey. So that's uh, that's when I like, okay, your name will be <laughs> Whiskey. <laughs> well, Raymond, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the trail as traveled. It was a big pleasure having, having uh, yeah, like a chat with you. And I mean, it's a pleasure sharing life experiences. I mean, it doesn't belong to us, whatever we experience. I'm sure we experience stuff to share it with the world. So that's a blessing. Let's end your show with maybe a piece of advice that you can share with whoever's listening out there. Okay. One very big advice, uh, and that's, that's, that's something I love out of, man is forgiveness. I believe we need to walk in forgiveness towards other people every single day of our life. I mean, we are living in a, in a fallen world. Eh? Me and you, we have done something to other people, whether it was consciously or unconsciously, by accident or whatever. If that person doesn't forgive you, he's walking with stuff which is in his heart and I mean, we go on with our lives, but he's walking with a struggle. No, this person did this stuff to me. It was unfair. But if you can just forgive, eh, you're a free person. And that forgiveness, for me, starts with receiving forgiveness. You cannot give something you haven't received. I mean, that's quite obvious. If my dad didn't give me a vehicle, I can't offer a vehicle to someone. So if I don't receive forgiveness for my wrongdoing, if I don't receive that, I cannot give it to someone because then I didn't receive it. Mm -hmm. But that's the only time when I could start walking in forgiveness, being able to forgive other people because somebody forgave me for my wrong. And that's where I received it. And now it's a gift. I can give it. Mm -hmm. But also... That forgiving is actually for myself, for my own sanity and for my own health to forgive. Because tomorrow, someone's going to do something again which I don't enjoy. Whether on purpose or not, stuff happens. But I need to forgive. I'm constantly walking in forgiveness when I meet someone. It's almost like I'm forgiving them before, <laughs> before I'm meeting them. Because I know I'm not perfect. I'm going to do something which someone else might not like or make a joke and this person understand it incorrectly. Stuff happens. Mm -hmm. All of us need to find what principles is there we can live by. So this forgiving, is that's a principle. Please forgive me the way I forgive those who wrong me. It's advice, but that's also that's how I, I try to live my life because I've seen the fruit of it. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series. 
The show premieres every Sunday evening from 6 to 7 Mountain Time, and you can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. The show is also a podcast. The podcast is live right now, and you can view the full show archive online at traillesstraveled.net. I'd like to take a moment to thank my friend Raymond for sitting down with me in the bush and sharing the adventure of farming honey, recreating old Land Rovers with Toyota parts, and the incredible journey that he took around Southern Africa on horseback for 80 days and 1,000 kilometers. The Trail Less Traveled is dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Every week I'll be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. If you'd like to get in touch, to suggest a guest for the show, or learn about our international outreach programs in schools, please visit traillesstraveled.net. My adventure tip this week is to eat more raw, locally sourced honey. Bees do much more to help the body than to hurt it. The National Honey Board and the American Medical Association found through research that eating honey raised within a 50-mile radius of your home helps prevent allergies. Local honey contains bee pollen and prophylis, substances created exclusively by bees that do many great services to the body, including reduction of inflammation, boosting the immune system, building immunity to the pollen contained in the honey from the local plant culture, and stabilizing the cells that trigger allergic reactions. Honey also contains antioxidants, which fight off free radicals. Furthermore, raw local honey can be used as an antiseptic. It can dry into a natural bandage. It can help heal mild burns and sunburns. It can help soothe diaper rash and it helps with a sore throat. So my tip is, consume more locally sourced raw honey raised within a 50 mile radius of your home. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Let's get engaged and speak up for the resources we love so much. And as always, get outside and shred the gnar. Because the thing about the NAR is, it doesn't shred itself.